Go ahead and welcome everybody that came to church. Let them know that as fancy as you may look today, you're going to be even fancier next week for the 11-year anniversary of Four Points Church, which is my first full year of getting to be the pastor here, which I'm, yeah, humbled and excited that I've gotten to spend a whole year with you. I mean, we're about to come up on a second Christmas and another season of the men trying to survive Hallmark movies that incessantly tell the same stories in different settings of book salesmen that make millions of dollars and live a cush lifestyle magically, and there's no taxes in any of those movies. Life's good. Life's good. But hey, it's going to be awesome. Uh, We're in a series called Make Space. Uh, Over the first year, it may not seem that way today, but over this first year, we've actually doubled in size as a church. Uh, The average attendance going into the month of October is over 500 people per week that we've seen over the last few months, which is up 100% from the 250 range that we were in a year prior. Now, South Carolina won last night, Clemson won last night. Apparently, some people were rejoicing so much and praising God that they didn't make it to church this morning. But nonetheless, God is doing a significant work in our church. And we always like to celebrate growth. That's kind of the things that we put out there as a church. Look at how much we've grown. Look at how many people come here. But there's a... uh, challenge that comes with growth. And that challenge is when you grow, complexity comes. And complexity can lead to grumbling. I I can remember this because when we went from two to three kids, man defense to zone defense, uh, it was a blessing. It was a blessing. But Nora, uh, as she has grown, has become quite the terrorist in our house. And so she's created some complexities. Things get up on the walls that aren't supposed to be on the walls. Yesterday, we thought we'd paint pumpkins in the yard. What's the worst that can happen? But the handprints on the stairs leading up to the house speak to the complexities that have come with growth. We had a car that didn't handle three kids well, so we had to get a bigger car. So there's some complexity that comes with growth. Well, our ministry has grown, and as our ministry, and I say our, because let me be very clear, this is a shared responsibility. It is not a platform that a pastor speaks from, and then we kind of celebrate and semi-idolize a, a speaker from a platform. I am a uh, person who is shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield with a community that is seeking to follow Jesus. We are imperfect. We are flawed. I share my imperfections constantly from the stage so that you never get under the guise that we're in some kind of weird system where I like am the standard and the bar for which we're striving for. I am someone that's straining alongside you after the bar that is Jesus that we can only reach by the Holy Spirit, to attain a life that's glorifying and honoring and somewhat like Him. And so it's our ministry, and within it, we've got complexity that we must address. Acts 6 gives us a story of that kind of complexity. Uh, We have a church that has grown over five years to several thousands of people, and in that growth has come an overlooking of a group within their community. The Hellenistic Jews felt like they were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food by the native Jewish-speaking Jews. And so you need to understand something that though you may be from the same ethnic background, there are lots of subcultures within each ethnicity. And though the, the church in Acts 6 was predominantly culturally, or excuse me, ethnically Jewish, they had a lot of subcultures that represented that community. You had Greek-speaking Jews, you had Hellenists, you had other types of Jewish people that had gathered together and had stayed in Jerusalem uh, after Pentecost and had been sharing in life together. And in the overlooking of it, they faced a challenge that threatened their growth. 
If they didn't meet the challenge of the complexities that had come, they likely would have stagnated and begun to plateau and die off. But instead, they equipped saints. They grabbed more people and uh, gave them the stewardship of ministry to make sure that it happened. They culturally became more diverse. Different people with different cultural backgrounds now shared in the leadership of the early church. And the end of Acts 6 and uh, verse 7, it says, And God continued to multiply and add to their number daily those that were being saved. They met the challenge and they were able to continue to grow. For us, we have to meet the challenge in order to continue to grow as well. And in particular, we've got a lot of challenges when it comes to fifth grade and under, because that's the biggest demographic that's growing in our church. We are grateful that you've been faithful to be fruitful and multiply, but we have come to a point where literally we are trying to find space in the space that we are in, even if that means that we have to build it like going up. So maybe the sanctuary is going to the second floor, and we're going to have like a convertible top on it, and it'll just... At, these are the ideas that were rejected by the elders uh, that I proposed as solutions. But, but nonetheless, here's where we're at. We're in a season of growth where we need the individuals who called this church home to help us make space so that we can reach those that we've yet to reach. We want to be about reaching the least, the lost, and the lonely with the gospel, but that means that we've got to shoulder this blessed burden of ministry together in order to make room for it. So last week we talked about everyone's favorite subject, which is the treasure of your heart and what your money says about what you treasure. And many people walked away thinking they're trying to get money in the church. That is absolutely so low. Don't be offended there. Here's what I'm really after. I'm after you becoming a generous person. I'm not after you giving money to a church. I'm after you living a generous lifestyle. I'm after you living a life that's open-handed to God and allowing Him to uh, dictate where your resources go, not just within the community of Christ, but to your neighborhood and to the least that are around you. It says in the book of Isaiah that a generous man devises generous plans, and by his generosity he will stand. It's a principle that teaches that no one is accidentally generous. Generosity comes through planning. In the book of Deuteronomy, before the nation of Israel ever has a harvest in the land that God had promised that he would give them, he gives them a law that mandates generosity. You're to leave the corners of your fields and the gleanings of your fields for the foreigner, for the single mother, for the oppressed. So you're to make margin in your life, in your budget, that so, so that you're not consuming at a rate that doesn't consider your neighbor or consider and prioritize first your God. It was a great message. You all did exactly what you're doing right now. Last week at the end of it, I patted myself on the back, encouraged myself in the Lord as King David did and kept on going. So this week, we're going to continue by looking at what I would consider a core text to the Christian life. It's a text that I like to bring up at least twice a year to remind us about how we are to do what God has called us to do. Uh, do you understand that there is a difference between going through the motions of obedience in a way that's unattractive and actually doing it in a way that is a fragrant aroma, a light in darkness, a salt to the earth? What I'm trying to say is some people are Christian, but their attitude stinks. The reason for doing what they do as a Christian stinks, and no one wants to be around them. And I just don't like being around stinky Christians. I don't like being around people that act like Jesus after three days came and appeared like a groundhog and then went back in the tomb and isn't here, and there ain't no, nothing to be happy or joyful about anymore. So, so we get two greats in the New Testament. If you want to live a great life, you should pay attention to the things that the Bible calls great. There's two of them in the New Testament. One is the Great Commission, and one is the Great uh, oh boy, Commandment. <laughs> I was hoping you'd 
have a response. Maybe you've never heard of these things. Two things called great in the New Testament. One's the Great Commission, one's the Great Commandment. The Great Commission is what we, as followers of Christ, and as a gathering of a thing called church, are here to do. And that is to go to the nations, preaching and proclaiming and living the gospel, so that everybody we come in contact with will hear and see and the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching them to obey, and knowing and baptizing them, knowing that, and, and knowing that He will be with us in that mission and endeavor until His return. Now, I totally butchered that. That's the Rust Standard Version. You should go look up the ESV version of it to make sure that I got all of it right. But my point is, we have a clear mission. Are you tracking with me? But before we get to how you do that mission, we should pay attention to this thing called the Great Commandment. Because the Great Commandment teaches us how we approach Christian service. We get it in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, uh, we get this ongoing conversation between Jesus and the Sadducees that's now going to bring the Pharisees into it. And for the Pharisees and Sadducees to ever get along on anything, you know there must be a massive enemy. Okay? So just imagine the kind of enemy it would take for Democrat and Republican to become friends. And be like, all right, let's just put all the foolishness aside and let's like, let's, let's be friends Let's be friends. Why don't we be friends? Okay, so Jesus was that for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, to give you a quick synopsis of the difference between the two, the Pharisees were the uber-conservatives of the day. Okay? They had memorized the entire Old Testament. They believed in the law and the entire Old Testament as the Word of God and as an authority over the people of God. And they spent all their time observing how to keep that law uh, to the very point that they had become recluses from society. They didn't want to touch anybody. They didn't want to be around anybody because if they got around people like you and me from Woodruff and the 101, we, we would not... We would not uh, help them in their endeavor of righteousness. So they, they stayed back from everybody, and it was their exclusion from society that gave them holiness in their mind. On the other end, you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the liberals of the day. They didn't believe in any of the Old Testament after the law. And they didn't believe in any of the miraculous parts of the Bible or that God moved miraculously. They didn't believe in the resurrection, yet they just asked in Matthew 22 Jesus a question about a resurrection, which is their way of trying to disprove it, which Jesus then confounds them, and they don't know what to do, which is really fun. Because when you play games with Jesus, he wins. Just, just know, he's undefeated in Monopoly. He owns it all. So the Sadducees are stumped, and in Matthew 22, the Pharisees come, and they try to take a swing at Jesus, and this is where we get the great commandment. Verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. What's amazing about that is it does speak to some of our approach. For some of you, you're here to get something from God, but you don't want God. And so your goal is to trap God into giving you what you want by making him think that you're going to surrender in an allegiance and an obedience that you're not actually going to be able to give. See, the grace of God is never opposed to you having an effort in your pursuit of him, but it is opposed to the idea that you can make God indebted to you. Grace is never opposed to effort, but it's always opposed to earning. And our faith operates on the equity and economy of grace. Which means it's undeserved, unmerited. God chooses to give it. You couldn't earn it. And you can't pay him back. And that's not the motivation for Christian service. So they come to trap him to protect what they want to keep. Not to actually gain understanding from the God that's standing in front of them. Verse 36, teacher... 
which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, verse 37, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Here's what's amazing. They looked at that and probably thought, simple. We can do that. And that's what's scary about human beings. Is we, we think we can do things that honor God apart from the work of God in us. You ever notice that Jesus told his disciples to do nothing until the Holy Spirit came? Why? Because we got a large sample size on what, what, what ministry looks like apart from the Holy Spirit from a guy named Peter. Cuts ears off. John's trying to call down thunder on people. This is what our Christian service looks like apart from the Spirit of God. Does this make sense? So, so he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. I mean, that, that, that should cause some pause. Because I can, I can be honest enough to say as your pastor that there have been things that have taken my attention away from a fully devoted mind, loves, heart, soul of God this week because I've been distracted by those things. And I've not, in a love of God, gone into those things and approached them in a good way. Which means at times, I parented in anger this week in frustration, not out of a desire to make a disciple. In times, I dealt with co-workers out of a desire to get them to do what I want so that I could look good or whatever. I've not dealt with them in the way that I should have because it's not been out of an overflow of my love of God with my mind, heart, soul, and strength. But it's actually been out of i got to deal with this so I can get back to religious things. Or i got to deal with this so I can do the things that I actually want to do. So we get a first commandment. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second, verse 38, goes on to say this. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And for some of you, that's a lot of love. The entire law and the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So here's what they're asking. Out of the Decalogue, that's the Ten Commandments, what are the most important? That's the question. You know, tell us which one we have to do so that we can pay attention to it and minimize the other. That's, that's what men do and women do with religion. You see, religion is humanity trying to get to God on their terms. Okay? I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to give you this day, this time, this religious action, and it's going to appease you. It's going to climb the hill to you, and you're gonna, then going to give to me. So it's me getting to God on my terms. That's man-made versions of religion. The gospel is God giving himself to us on his terms. You can't earn it. You can't find me. You don't deserve me. So I'll send my son to do for you what you can't do for yourselves, to fulfill the law that you are condemned under so that you now can be justified by the grace of his sacrifice and not the condemnation of a law that none of you can stand up to. That's why, I call it, that's why some of us who may be of the Pentecostal nature get a little happy in church because we realize we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. Sorry. That could have turned into a gritty moment, but we didn't go. We didn't go. We didn't go. There's still time. There's still time. This is a two-part commandment. It summarizes the entirety of the Decalogue. The first five commandments of the Old Testament deal with your vertical relationship with God. The second five deal with your horizontal relationship with your neighbor. Jesus essentially says what's most important is the first five followed by the second five. 
In their mind, they think he's divided it into a simplistic approach, but ultimately, the only way for you to live rightly before God is for you to preeminently put him in every position as first before your life, ahead of everything, as a priority. Now, this is a two-part call, and one's not the other, and the other's not the one. Meaning, you, you can't say that if I just do the second one, I fulfilled the first one. Because there are a lot of us that do Christian service and duty with no love of God, but we call it Christian. There's a group in Matthew 25 that does a lot of Christian service and duty, but not out of a love of God. And at the end, Jesus in judgment looks at them and says, depart from me, I don't even know who you are. They did part two, but they didn't prioritize part one. See, part one is the foundation and the reason for anything else you do. And if we don't get part one right, we shouldn't worry about a a mission or service, because until part one is right... There's no need to go out and attempt Christian service. What's part one? Love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The idea is that you are to savor the Savior before you serve the Savior. And if you've not savored the Savior, there's no need to be worried about trying to do some kind of service that in your mind's going to get twisted, not into an act of love and worship of God, but an act of trying to get from God what you lack. You've got to save her before you serve. You see, Christianity is not simply humanitarianism. We can't simply say, well, I was kind. I did good for her and was loving toward my neighbor. That means I am Christian. No, behind all outward action in life, there is a source and a motivation that is the foundation for why we do what we do. And for the Christian, that source is an overwhelming, savoring love of Christ. That foundation is... For the believer is an absolute adoration, desperation, and dependency on Jesus. We are, if we're followers of Jesus and we rightly know who we are apart from him, desperate in our life and in our grip on him. We're not Pharisees at a table with our arms crossed. We're women at his feet anointing them with our hair and tears. We're not a crowd that lines the street to get a glimpse. We're the Zacchaeuses in a tree because we got to get close. We're not content with being in a house. We're on the roof ripping it off the house because we want to be front and center. Am I making sense? See, there's a difference. Some of you just want to be in the crowd. Some of you just want to line a street. Some of you just want to sit at a table near him. But the believer knows that they have to touch him. So you push through the crowd and you get the hem of his garment. That's desperation and that's the normal Christian life. What's abnormal is week after week, what some of y'all come up in here doing. I'm just going to sit in it for a minute. It's what we deal with. As if you don't need his intervention. And then within that, our lack of desperation as a church tells other people that if we're too needy and too desperate, that it's not the right approach. No, the, the, the right approach is we run towards Christ. You know, it, it's when King David committed adultery and sin and murdered, and then he's confronted with it. You know, here's why I think he's a man for God's own heart. All right. We're way off the trail, but, but let's stay here, okay? 
Here's why I think it was a man after God's own heart. Because, I mean, most people that murder and commit adultery aren't, like, known as godly people. I mean, can we, can we agree? Like, who's godly? The murderer that committed adultery. That, that guy. Godly. Nailing it. That's man-made religion that makes that godly. That's not, not the gospel. He had offended a holy God with his sin, and he thought he could get away with it. He got confronted, and you know what he did? He ran toward God and not from God. That's what, that, that's what desperation for him looks like. See, for a lot of you, you, you became Christian, and you quickly forgot what your first love was. Revelation chapter 2 speaks of it. It talks about a church in Ephesus that started so great. I mean, they, they loved the Lord. And their love for the Lord changed their life. It changed the way that they lived. It changed the things that they prioritized. But in Revelation chapter 2, we get this confrontation that comes from the gospel writer John, who writes them in this last letter that he writes. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard, your hard work. You're trying. You're laboring. You're volunteering, you're serving, you're patient in endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. But you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me. The problem's not that the service is gone. The problem is that what's behind the service isn't there. There's no love for God that's in it. So it's not motivated by a love for God, which means it's now become a means for building identity and self-worth. It's now become a means for you to look the part to others, but it's not actually about being with Christ. See, This is the challenge that you and I fall into, that we could be busy bodies about things of God that actually have nothing to do with walking with God. We could be doing service that's actually not empowered by the work of God in our lives. It says, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Why? Because everything the believer does is motivated out of a savoring of the Savior. It's an enjoying of it. How many of you have ever had a meal that was so good you slowed down? You know what I'm talking about? Like, like I... Like, I'm not talking like South House or, you know, one of the meat and threes. And if you're not from the South, like, basically just a meat and three is where they put gravy on a bunch of vegetables and sugar <laughs> in them. And they stir it up and they call it healthy. Then your arteries are clogged and you're like, you know, <laughs> just keep eating. You don't, you don't savor that meal per se. I'm talking like the last time you really slowed down. We had some friends a while back. And they said, hey, we want to treat you guys to a really good meal. And I was like, okay, you know, like, what are we doing? And they said, we're taking you to uh, Hall's Chop House. I was like, oh, I've never been there. And I know why. Because <laughs> it was a car payment. And, uh, <laughs> but when they brought that food out, like, I've eaten steak and inhaled it. I was hungry, but I slowed down. I slowed down. I savored it. Back when I was in high school, I couldn't gain any weight. I was like 135 pounds for four straight years, which isn't going well if you're going to attempt to be the next LeBron James. So I was a stick, and uh, I still got an opportunity to play basketball at Anderson University, uh, but I couldn't gain weight. They had a nutritionist that met with me and sat down to go over what I was going to have to do to gain weight because they, you had to, there were two things you had to do at Anderson to play ball. You had to run a sub-530 mile, which was nuts. If you ever tried to run a sub-530 mile, you all sat there in silence like, oh, that's not a big deal. You ever tried that? 
the skies will open up, you'll see Jesus, and he may take you. Like, it, I'm just going to, the, the second thing you had to do, the second thing you had to do is you had to get above, I had to get above 150 pounds before they put me on the court. And so I'm trying. So they put me on a 4,300 calorie a day diet. Some of you are like, I've been on that without a doctor prescribing it for years. <laughs> Ate that at lunch yesterday. This is what I looked like back in the day. That, that's me right there. Got my puka shells. Notice, this is my boy Steven. He works at BMW. This is his birthday yesterday. Uh, that's my buddy Buck. That's my buddy Calvin. He's not flexing. That's just him. Buck's flexing. <laughs> Calvin's like, it just, it just came with it. It just, it just go with it. And then meanwhile, here I am. I remember about three or four weeks into that meal plan, constantly going to the cafeteria, eating after everything we would do. And it got to a point where it didn't, it, like, there was nothing on the plate. It, it, it just was all the same thing. It was just stuff. And I'm just cramming it in and eating it. And it got to a point where it was just mindless ongoing, constant activity to where I was just shoving down the food just to get the calories in to meet the quota so I could play basketball. But there was no savor in what was on the plate. And my, my concern is that's what a lot of Christian service has become for you. It's mindless. We do it because we ought to. We show up because we have to. But it has nothing, nothing to do with the love of God. Thank you for taking that picture off has nothing to do with the love of God. It's not motivated because we want to worship and honor and adore Him. No, it's, it's motivated because we want something that we have, in our minds, not received from Christ that we're going to find in Christian service to Christ. The natural byproduct of being in love is that you tell people. You tell people what you love. You're, you're proud of it. You put it on the front page of your social media accounts. You lead in with it. Back in the day, you would open up a wallet and the pictures would fall out, and these were the things you loved. Uh, the problem in the Christian church is not a lack of evangelism. It's a lack of love. The problem in the Christian church is not a lack of people to serve. It's a lack of love. See, I wish it were just as easy as we need to sign up. What it really is, is a lack of people who have savored the Savior, who have taken the time to enjoy Jesus and allow that enjoyment to lead them into the service of what they do. Here's what I want you to make sure you know. There is a first commandment, and it's greater than the second. We start with the first before we get to the second. We don't start at the second and go work back to the first. So for some of you today, the step you need to take, the step I would encourage you to take, is getting back to a place of slowing down so that you can enjoy God. But the second part comes on the hills of it, and it says in verse 39, it's like it. Verse 39, he says, uh, a second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, a lot of us are like, well, I'm really good at that. But let's pause on that and push into what the Bible would mean by neighbor a little bit. There's a group of Pharisees that come and question Jesus later in the Bible, and Jesus talks about loving your neighbor, and they ask, who's my neighbor? Familiar? Jesus tells them a story of a good what? Samaritan. Essentially, their cultural and ethnic enemy. A group of people that they hated, that they avoided, 
Uh, they built paths to avoid them. If, if you were to walk the path near Samaria, Samaritans would actually spit at you and, and pronounce a curse over you, and vice versa. The Jews called the Samaritans half-breeds. The Samaritans thought that the Jews were legalist and evil who thought, they were just, who thought too much of themselves. And so in that, Jesus tells a story of the Good Samaritan where a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law that are supposed to know the heart of God because of it pass by a man that's bleeding on the side of the road and a Samaritan who's supposed to be the evil person does the right thing, the thing that honors God. My, my point is, before you say you're fulfilling the second law, let's consider who your Samaritans are. Who are the people that you're most prone to overlook, dismiss, not give the benefit of the doubt to, or the benefit of the idea that God's at work in, transforming and changing them so they may not be the same person they were back in the 80s. But the grudge from the 80s still holds true today. You see, the Bible goes on to say stuff like, what benefit is it to you if you love the people that love you? Don't the pagans do that? I mean, of course you love people that are loving to you. What makes it Christian is when you love people who reject you and revile you and deny you and betray you and turn their back on you. That's a sign that you've inherited the love of God in you. When what comes from you is love and not hate. In those moments, you can look at some of the great figures that loved the Lord and changed history throughout time. Dr. Martin Luther King, who consistently promoted peaceful protests in the midst of non peaceful response that came back. And what he did constantly was promote and give what the world was refusing to give back to him on the basis of his skin color, and that was grace and love that came from a grace and love he had received from a Savior named Jesus. We love God, we savor Him, we enjoy Him, we worship Him, we find our value in Him, we find our identity in Him, we find our worth in Him. And the overflow of that is that when we love God in that way, it leads us to the people that God is pursuing, the least, the lost, the lonely, the broken, the hurting, the oppressed, the marginalized. And when you approach them, you don't approach them as a less than image bearer, but as a brother or sister who needs the love of Christ through you, not a charity from you. It changes the way that you see them. It changes the way that you receive them, the kind of way that you sacrifice for them. Now, there's a Bible, there's several apps out there that like tell you different things. Like there's like, you know, what Marvel character are you? You've seen that one? Or like, what Disney character are you? And they scan your face and then Russia finds out who you are, where you live. They've got your biometric data. Some of you are like really concerned about the internet finding out where you are and you carry a, a device on you called your phone that you're married to that you will not give up ever that tracks every step you go. But nonetheless, you keep thinking what you need to think um, to give you peace at night. But Here's my point. How many of you have ever seen one that's like, this is the Bible character you're most like? Anybody? Okay. You know what they never include in that? They don't ever like, here's the Bible character you're most like. Uh, you're most like Judas. Like that, That's just not like... <laughs> right? They don't... You're, you're most like Simon the sorcerer who tried to buy God and manipulate a move of God so that he could have the power of it. That's who you're like. Like, like, no one wants to, like, like we all, I want to be King David post-adultery murder. <laughs> I want to be Peter post-Pentecost. 
Because we don't ever look at Peter and go, yeah, I'm like Peter. I, cut, I, I act first and then, you know, apologize later and make mistakes. No, like, I'm like Peter. Like, you know, I'm bold and I proclaim, you know. I want to be Ruth after the journey. Here's what's interesting. Most of us never have brought up wanting to be like this character in 3 John. But this is kind of how the kingdom of God works. 3 John chapter, uh, verses 9 and 10, it's only one chapter. I wrote the church about this, but Diotrephus, who loves to be the leader... Some of you on the surface probably read that and think, that's who I want to be like. I want to be the leader. The problem is, is you don't understand God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not one where we, as leaders, go first, but leaders go last. The problem with this guy is he wants to be first. He wants to control the ministry, so he won't let any ministry outside of his control happen. He's actually choking out ministry within the church because of his love to control everything around him. So most of us don't want to be him, or most of us would want to, on the surface, potentially be him, when in actuality what God would call us to his leaders is to be servants of all. And that's the message and what Jesus modeled for us. Matthew chapter 23, verse 11. Jesus said, The greatest among you will be your... Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We want to be great in God's kingdom. Do you want to be great in God's kingdom? Then love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, which means you're going to have to become, under his leadership by his spirit, a servant to all. It's not what you do to the great, but it's what you do to the least that matters in God's kingdom. You see, whenever we savor the Savior well, we prioritize and serve our neighbors well. For some of you today, this is your first step. You need to get back to your first love. I don't know what that looks like. It may look like unclouding the schedule. It may look like getting up 20 minutes earlier tomorrow morning. It may look like dropping and saying no to stuff instead of just saying yes to everything that everybody asks you to do. It may look like making margin for Christian community because the only way that I know that you'll reach your full potential in Christ is by getting around a few people that love the Lord together with you that are going to push and pursue you towards godliness and towards pursuing Christ together as they do it alongside of you. So for some of you, maybe it's first there. Again, we're not after you serving the church. We are after you serving as a lifestyle. It's like me sending you on a mission trip. If we ever send you on a mission trip, it better be a mission lifestyle, not a trip. We are missionaries that are always on mission. We're just going to this specific place to be on mission for this next season of life. So for some of you, those are the steps you need to take. But for some, and this is where the need is in the house, there's a need for you to step up uniquely and serve here. We've got lots of fifth grade and under, 170 of them on average per week. Between two services, that's lots of youngins. And we don't babysit. We're making disciples. We're teaching them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want them to grow in their faith and be rooted in their faith. We're preparing them for that first-year college professor. In high school, we've got small groups and small group leaders that are breaking down the Bible and theology and Christian living so that we don't create a bunch of hearers that aren't doers, but they are actually doing that. And we need people to serve in those areas. You come into this church, it's a little bit intimidating. There's a barefoot dude that's young that just showed a picture of himself with his nipples out. It's weird. It's weird. We've got to have people that make it a little less weird. And we need help with that. I said nipples in two services today. It's really weird. (laughs) 
We, we, we need people that clear the path for people to meet and connect with Jesus on a regular basis. I have a friend, he was up in the Chicago area, and his church had gone through a lot of exponential growth. It had grown a lot. And uh, they were a more charismatic-leaning church, which tends to be the people that I like to hang out with because they're fun. You never know what's going to happen, you know? It's not predictable. You don't plot, pray, pay, and leave, you know? Like sometimes someone takes a lap, and a flag gets waved, and a tambourine gets shook, and you know, like... Stuff happens. Um, so uh, I, I was talking to him. I was like, well, what are you doing about the volunteer crisis you're having? And he said, well, I got up there and preached Luke 4 to him. And I was like, well, what, what's Luke 4? And I went and looked, and this is what it was. You ready? After leaving the synagogue that day, Jesus went to Simon, Peter's home, where he found Simon's mother-in-law very sick with a high fever. Most of us read that. We think, oh, you know, take a Tylenol, take a nap. You'll get over it. That's the way fevers work, not during Jesus' time. A fever is as serious as a coma in our time. It's very iffy back then. Are they going to get better or are they going to die? It, it, was, it was very much on a dime and you wouldn't know it. You would come down with a fever quick and you would either recover quick or you would die quick. So she's really sick. Her future is really in jeopardy. Jesus just delivered a, uh, several demons from a man earlier. So they come and they beg, please heal her, everyone beg. 39, standing at her bedside, he rebuked the fever and it left her, and it left her. Here's what's amazing. By this point in time, uh, Peter's mother-in-law has heard some stories about this Jesus. She's heard some of the miraculous things he's done in Peter's calling. She's heard some of the first miracles that he's begun to do. He's heard about, she's heard about the wedding feast in Cana and the turning of water to wine. I mean, she's heard incredible stories. But Christianity is not just a heard about it faith. It starts through hearing, but it doesn't begin to transform until there's a believing. Until it becomes personal. You see, she's yet to experience the personal touch about what she's heard other people experience. Yet in this moment, Jesus steps up, steps in, and she moves from hearing about the power of Jesus to experiencing the power of Jesus. This is God's intent for you. He doesn't merely want you to gather stories about what he's done, but he's active through the Holy Spirit and his word, and he's moving, and he can change your life. He can heal you. He can transform you. He can rescue you. He can deliver you. He can break the bondage of addiction over you. He can restore relationships that are not restorable in your mind. He can bring your joy back to a place of solid joy that's in something greater than something that can be bought or purchased or need batteries to replace it. God still moves, not just corporately, but personally. And He desires to move, desires to move personally in your life. In fact, what I'm hearing right now is a whole lot of people saying yes because they've experienced God. God move in their life. Amen? You have a firsthand story of how God moves. So does she now. Now, what's her response? See, my, my friend got to this point in the sermon, and just like you guys did, everyone clapped and cheered because they had a story of how God had healed them. So the question came, and how many of you have taken your next biblical step she got up at once and prepared a meal for them. She didn't go through eight weeks of recovery classes. She had been impacted. The recovery was ongoing. It was active. It was happening. And in the midst of the recovery, she began to serve. So here's the point. 
they were understaffed. They needed people to serve. And so he said, out those double doors is every lead volunteer in our church. And if you call this church your home, we need you in some capacity out of a love of Christ, not out of a duty to your church or an obligation to step up and prioritize in some way, some margin to serve the place that is serving and feeding you. There were less amens on the second part of his sermon and in mine. See, when you savor the Savior, the natural byproduct is you begin to serve the Savior in a way that impacts your neighbor. Jesus doesn't need your service. Your neighbor does. And it's your love of Jesus that enables you to love your neighbor. So guess what? Out those double doors. Every team leader in this church is going to be in that foyer. Because in order for us to move forward, to reach who we've yet to reach, it will require many of you who are seated in your seats on dare I say your blessed assurance and gifts that God has given you to get up and begin to deploy and use them for the glory of God so that we can be the church that God has called us to be, welcoming the least, the lost, and the lonely into fellowship and life-changing relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords. They're going to be out there. We'd invite you to talk to them on your way out. They're not going to mob you. They're not going to run up to you. Maybe they will, but they're, they're going to be out there. Uh, and if your next step is serving, we'd love for you to do that. But for some of you, you've been hearing about this Savior, and I need you to know, He intends to be firsthand with you. He loves you. He has a plan for your life. He has a, a way of bringing your brokenness and your pain to a glorious, beautiful ending. And if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, I want to invite you to leave your pride in your seat and come down front and talk to one of the people on our prayer team about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. And next Sunday, come and be baptized on our 11-year anniversary. So come, yeah. Come as we stand, and if you need to give your life to Jesus, you come, you take that first step, we'll worry about the next step next week, and we'll watch what God does. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing.